I walk and wonder and wander through the maze of NYU and non-NYU buildings and read posters touting the upcoming bands at a new club. Ground Zero Mosque, Tidy Whiteys, Ain, Barbara's Bush, Sam the Butchers, Flatulence, Roy and Siegfried, The Skid Marks, Grassy Knolls, Banana Fish, Grilled Toe Cheese. Slowly and concentrically, I wash up on Velveeta Smith's doorway at two minutes before eight. She buzzes, she'll be right down, and minutes later, my heart leaps when she steps through the foyer. Seven years. Seven years since I felt the emotional, physical, sensual tug of kissing a woman lightly on the cheek and telling her for the first time how pretty she looks, and seeing her smile while her nostril wings flutter for just a moment, silently telling me, I smell good. And probably at least three years since a woman smiled at me the way Velveeta Smith just did. Not since Megan down in Oklahoma City. We've been texting for days, and I've been downright giddy every time I turn on my phone and see the text icon. She agreed on Indian, and the joint I selected is perfect in two ways. It's dark and nearly always empty. We're there in no time and settle in. Then the guy with the sitar moves away. The waiter uncorks the bottle of red I remembered to bring, and Velveeta pops in some papadam. She looks gorgeous. Gone are the layers, the hoodies, the rah-rah athletic gear, and instead the clingy blouse and short skirt reveal treasures I only imagined while seated at the long wooden table in the seminar room. She's even dabbed on a bit of makeup, and I can't help feeling honored and grateful. It's for me. Me. Thank you, Velveeta Smith. No doubt she debated on the blouse veeing apart from two open buttons or three, and I want to assure her the winning vote for three isn't lost on this appreciative fan. But it's so much more than deconstructing body parts, juicy though they may be. I've forgotten what it's like to be with a woman, just one woman for an evening, a woman who isn't faulting me with her eyes or waiting to say something to spoil the night, disapproving, dismissing, denigrating. In recent weeks, my mind has rewound over how she treated me during the last few years of our brief marriage, and it's safe to say I've passed through the denial stage. I now realize I've been afraid to acknowledge what was virtually contempt. Velveeta reminds me I've missed so much about being with a woman and didn't even realize it. Her eyes when she tells me something I never knew. Her laugh when I lob in some shtick. Her upper arms when she tosses back her hair. I love being with a woman, and now I realize losing this is yet one more item on a long list of items taken so abruptly and perhaps permanently. This list of discovering what I've lost continues to expand. Do you want to get a couple of things and share, I ask? She smiles widely. I was just going to suggest that. That's lit. The sitar strains waft from the rear, and I sit up taller. 
seven excruciating years. The waiter has memorized our order, reassuring us he'll bring Nan right away, and I can wait no longer. The soft light from the street highlights Velveeta Smith's strawberry blonde halo, and I reach back and retrieve my wallet. I know we haven't talked very much, I say, aware of my awkwardness and yet not caring, but I want to show you something. I flip open the wallet so the fold naturally exposes both my Exxon mobile card and a Sears portrait of Ben holding a ship's wheel. That's my son. He's three in December. She smiles perfunctorily, then says, nice. The light from the street seems to shift momentarily, and her hair darkens. His name is Ben. Vilvita nods. I'm holding the wallet at an odd angle, with my wrist inverted uncomfortably, so I finally slip it back in. This place smells amazing, she says. I passed by it like a million times, but I never crossed over. I pour more wine, hers first. So Ben's with me right now. His mother, well, we're still working out stuff. For now, he's with me. That's awesome. I find it impossible to process exactly what that overused word means. The waiter arrives, throwing down bowls of mango chutney and raita, extra napkins, a sizzling platter of vegetable samosa and pakora. Velveeta's face lights the way I'd wanted it to light at the Sears 2x3, and she snaps a photo of the appetizers. I dab at some tamarind sauce and bluntly dive in. So, do you like kids? Her front teeth pull at the crust of an overly stuffed samosa, and she finally utters a rather weak, sure. I'm watching her eyes now, probably way too intently, and I can feel the happy expression on my face ten minutes ago has evaporated. Likely for good. I mean, with your project and all. What you told me with the kindergarten kids. I figured, you know, you really like kids. She leans in and says, as long as they're someone else's. Then she breaks into a giggle that I think lasts much too long. I stop chewing and realize at once the meal is over. The night is over. Velveeta Smith is over. Now it's all about running down the clock in as painless a manner as possible, like during a disastrous shift at La Garbage when it's nothing but diverted and canceled flights. I openly look at my watch and realize my Lambriani hasn't even arrived yet. Of course, the waiter has disappeared. Eventually, I pay for everything, including the tip, and walk Velveeta right to her door. Though we're side by side on Broadway, I've already entered my post-Velveeta Smith period. She's talking at length, too much actually, about how corporate psychology consultants at for Fortune 500 companies sold their souls. I actually might have found the topic interesting had events progressed differently. Or at her foyer, I smile broadly. This was nice. Thanks. Velveeta's forehead crinkles. Are you okay? I may step back from her, but I'm not entirely certain. Sure. 
you seem a little distant. My smile remains. Tired. Got a long shift tomorrow. Mondays are tough. She sighs. Take care, Mike. During the long walk back through the East Village, I realize, of course, I'm a flaming asshole. On some level, I know a 22-year-old woman doesn't have to spring into cartwheels over toddlers. I understand I might have spent many fine days and even finer nights in the company of Elvita Smith, and those occasions would have absolutely no bearing on my ability to parent Ben. In fact, I realize she may even have come to enjoy Ben's company in due time. Yet, when I reached Lovey, I'm back to weighing the benefits of dating and masturbation. And it's a dead heat. My phone vibrates, a text from my sister Katie. How's the big night with cheddar cheese? I decide not to respond as I start the engine and that noisy muffler kicks in. When the muffler finally falls clear off Lovey, it's a relief. Ben comes with me to Midas on Queens Boulevard. I've owned quite a few cars, so I know the drill. Sure, they guarantee the muffler itself for 700 years, but they get you on pipes and clamps. Ben is not feeling well, and I hold him in my arms. We're standing inside the garage, watching them work the hydraulic lift. Looky there, buddy. Lovey is up in the air. He lifts his head to ask, The blue station wagon? Then he pukes, violently, and seemingly without end. On my Icelandic flag t-shirt, my jeans, my Reeboks and socks, my shoelaces. Others, who are also exhaust system challenged, peer out from the waiting room to watch. It ends finally, and Ben cries softly. I kiss his hair and rub his back. There's no need worrying about a second wave. He's already thrown up more than he weighs. I tell the Midas manager, I think it's best we swing by another day. He's yelling at two Pakistani assistants. One should lower the wagon, the other should get him up. Then I spread a tattered Air Force blue blanket across the front seat and violate a cardinal law by strapping Ben in beside me, sans car seat. With all the windows lowered, it doesn't smell as bad as I would have thought. It's okay, buddy, I repeat over and over. I quote what was inscribed on his first baby bib. Spit happens. He leans against me, speaking softly about the color of vomit. The New York Mets aren't far behind in the National League East. Sure, I'm a contrarian, but I can't turn my back on the mutts. When Ben was six months old, I dressed him in a blue and orange jumpsuit with booties to match, and we took him for his first game. She kept repeating he'd never remember it, but I didn't care. So now among the things I'll send to his new home out west are a Mets t-shirt and cap. Thankfully, blue, orange, and white are all favorites of his. He'll be living just down I-64 from the Cardinals, so he needs inoculation before he goes. The landlord and I finally chat, and I make plans to move. Giving up the apartment is the only way to keep my job, stay in grad school, and pay the lawyers. 
I've toured NYU dorm rooms the size of prison cells, but I always knew where I'd wind up. My younger brother Kevin has a two-room joint in Astoria, down near all the 20-something grad students, unpublished writers, and aspiring musicians. Only his loft is in a brand new building constructed specifically for hipsters and other Gen Xers and wires with serious bucks and an unobstructed view of the far side of the East River. For those of us born in Queens, it's amusing as hell to see the borough finally gentrified and hear 30-year-old gay magazine editors from Wisconsin talk about Jackson Heights like it was just invented. Of course, one of the dirty little secrets of New York City real estate is that a lot of young struggling kids aren't struggling at all. They're posing as struggling while their parents are paying the $3,000 a month for those lofts you see in romantic comedies and TV sitcoms. They just pretend to struggle, as if life itself is another ziplining course where some are spent volunteering in Haiti. But they know, and their parents know, and their landlords know, that eventually they'll move out of those lofts and settle in Glen Cove or Montclair or Darien or Hastings-on-Hudson. I call Kevin, and he helps me transport the big dresser to her mother's house. I don't want her moving guys coming into what's now de facto my apartment. We wrestle it into my wagon and then sit on the hood. I pass him my Pepsi, but he retrieves a spring water. He eats macrobiotic while I just keep putting on weight. My kid brother is taller than me, a hell of a lot richer than me, and quite a bit more centered than me. The bastard. I'm parked at a hydrant, the flasher's flashing. So when's she leaving? he asks. A couple weeks. A few years back, Kevin got married himself, though it was an odd coupling that didn't last. In all, they spent less than a year under the same roof. But the good news is, there were no kids. The whole transaction was cleaner than the Dutch turning New Amsterdam over to the British. They both had MBAs, so their prenups covered everything from light bulbs to coat hangers to shower curtains. It's funny, the night he told me they split up, I felt sorry for him. Now, I envy him. It's doubtful he'll marry again soon. In fact, maybe never, because he seems happier than ever. He swigs the water. So, uh, where are you going to be? What do you mean? I mean, you're staying here, keeping this place? Nah, can't swing it. The lawyer's bills are killing me. Kevin wipes his brow. Uh-huh. What about Eileen's? I've already considered my mother's place. Uh-uh. Can't. I mean, it works just sleeping over now and then, but I can't move in permanently. You know, with my hours and my shifts, getting in at all times, she'd wait up all night on midnight shifts and get up to make me breakfast. She'd never get any rest. Yeah. I finish the Pepsi and say nothing. Kevin's not like the rest of us. I don't think of him any longer as Irish-American or an ex-alter boy or a kid from Queens. He probably doesn't either. He didn't consciously reject us or any part of his past. It's just money people have a culture all their own. They're like Amish or Hasidim in Brooklyn. In a way, the cult that welcomed Kevin is democratic 
They don't care where you're from, so long as you kneel and offer a novena for nine straight days in front of the Charging Bull statue down in Bowling Green Park. For money people, Wall Street is the Vatican, and cash brings transubstantiation. He was shaking off Queens long before he got back from Wharton, so it's pretty ironic his seven-figure pad is in Astoria. Besides the loft, there's the Land Rover, and 33 and third percent of a cigarette boat, plus a summer place in Sag Harbor, and a new girlfriend every time I change the batteries in my smoke alarms. But he's a good kid, and he's my brother. We both know that starting next month, I'll be sleeping on the couch in Kevin's apartment. The spare bedroom is his office, where he speaks to Chinese traders when most of Astoria sleeps. Maybe for a few months, maybe the better part of a year. Nearly all my possessions will go into storage at the stop-in store in Elmhurst. A couple of floor-to-ceiling cases of books, some softball bats, an Air Force footlocker, an 18-speed bicycle with 15 working speeds, a box of wedding photos. Part of the anxiety of moving is that hoarding our belongings makes us face the stark reality of just how little we truly possess. Kevin never quite offers, and I never quite ask, but he'll rescue me from homelessness without ever discussing it. In the end, we'll stumble through such decisions in the wordless communication perfected by Irish-American brothers. By early August, the tan line where my wedding ring had been has disappeared. I'm finishing a swing shift, paying back a newbie who covered me so I could swear out a deposition. I'm seated next to this guy, Wayne, and during breaks we talk. That is, he talks about sex. I've known guys like this in high school and in the service. The funny thing is, like a lot of carnally obsessed men, he's somewhat physically repulsive, with buttocks so abnormally large it looks like he stuffed the back of his jeans with National Weather Service telexes. At shift's end, he's waiting for me. No offense, dude, really. I know you care about your kid and all. Uh, you do uh, you, do you, but you're divorced. You gotta get laid, dude. I mean, seriously. I shrug. Yeah, well. No, seriously. I mean, like, tonight. Tonight? That's not on the blue post-it in my pocket. Lion King tickets? Call Hillary Notary? Switch for the 28th? Adult mouthwash and kid shampoo? Wagon? Midas? Done? A&D diaper creams? Wipes? You know, who, I ask. Ten minutes later, I'm following his black BMW Z3 out of the employee lot and contemplating that a controller's salary isn't so bad with no kids or attorneys to support. Soon, we're in Manhattan, southbound on Broadway, and passing Letterman's place at way too fast a clip. In the theater district, he breaks violently and cuts across three lanes to park. I slow down more cautiously. We meet where I figured we would, in front of a canopy advertising the topless joint upstairs. I follow Wayne's large buttocks, and he acts as though he's home. I try not to look at the four girls on stage as we work our way toward the back. The DJ is spinning Maneater. 
We find seats at a small round table with three chairs, and Wayne beckons a tall girl in an orange G-string walking off stage. Hey there, Wayne says. Her smile makes it clear she's seen him before, but she isn't happy. Hey, hey. Want to come have a drink? Maybe later. I laugh at Wayne. Quite the ladies' man. Now I spot another woman walking by, but she's a waitress, not a dancer. She's wearing an overly sexy outfit, high heels, red gym shorts, and a small top exposing her tummy and pushing her considerable cleavage up and out. I nod at her. Hi, guys. I smile while Wayne orders a Heineken. I'm feeling patriotic, so I ask for Sam Adams. Then I say, would you like a drink? She hesitates, but then nods. Sure. Give me a minute. I've got a break soon. After she leaves, Wayne turns to me in disbelief. Dude, what the fuck? What? You're supposed to drink with naked chicks. Off the hook, not waitresses. Nobody goes home with a waitress. It's cray-cray. I shrug. She seems really nice. Besides, she's the cutest. As Wayne sulks, I recall joining a dozen enlisted men for a bachelor party at a strip club down in Tampa. This senior master sergeant, a guy old enough to have fathered some of us, lit up a cigar and said, Boys, the first rule in topless bars is the best chests are the ones you can't see. At the time, I had no idea what he meant. Our waitress has returned, carrying a tray with our beers and a seltzer for herself. Wayne and I dig out cash and throw way too much of it onto the tray. I smile and stand up, and she sits next to me. So, how are you guys doing? I'm Wayne. This is uh, my buddy Mike. We work together. Hi, Mike. Wayne starts jabbering about the Hamptons, where he's got a timeshare with guys from the JFK Tower. Then, without the pretense of explaining why, he gets up and leaves. Very subtle. I steal a few looks at this woman. She's short and stacked, and probably from a large Italian family in Massapequa Park. Relatives in illegal basement apartments violating the Nassau County Fire Code. They all get together on Christmas Eve for seven types of fish at her Aunt Rose's, and then head to Midnight Mass. She's got long dark hair, and she's all curves and cambers, no sharp angles anywhere. I like that she's not emaciated, though, of course, any heterosexual male over the age of 12 would be insane to utter such a thing to an American female. My eyes remain focused above her clavicle. I'm not sure what to say. Uh, I, I guess you know Wayne, huh? Sort of. We've crossed paths. Uh-huh. A long pause. So uh, I didn't get your name. Gina. Gina. Another pause, even longer. She makes a stab. So where do you guys work, anyway? I'm with the United States government. She doesn't like the sound of it. Which branch? Federal Aviation Administration. That right? Doing what, exactly? I'm an air traffic controller. LaGuardia. We call it La Garbage. She seems to perk up. Really? 
Now her brow crinkles. You putting me on? Without giving it any thought, I reach back and remove my wallet and open to my photo ID with the USDOT seal. Immediately, there's movement on all sides. She covers the wallet with both hands. The nearest chunky bouncer starts speaking into his earpiece, and a second chunky bouncer crosses the dance floor in about five strides. Earpiece squats down beside me. They're a problem officer. I'm slow, but I get it. I quickly flip the wallet closed and tuck it away, this time in my front pocket. Not at all. The second bouncer hovers. We're good in here, he tells me. We're good. I'm sure you are. What precinct you out of, he demands. I'm not a cop. Both bouncers look at each other and then at Gina. He's an air traffic controller, she tells them. A what? You know, he speaks to the planes. I smile my best. I'm not a cock, even though I'm barrel-chested and stocky, and I've got an Irish mug, and I was born in Queens, and I went to Archbishop McCarthy Memorial High School. Smile. Earpiece stands up. You expecting to park a 747 in here, or what? Gina waves them away, then laughs. They don't dig the stinking badges. My bad, I lean in. Mind if I ask you something? Ask. She's all business again. Your belly, those rings, doesn't it hurt? Everybody asks that. Sure, sore for days. And the tattoo, you know, right next to it. Man, your stomach's been through a lot. She smirks. That's nothing. I almost had a cesarean. That would have sucked. I mean, wearing these tops? Lucky I had a good OB guy. He waited it out, and we did it the old-fashioned way. I probably wouldn't have gotten this job. She shakes her head. They don't want to see a scar. Not there. Finally, I shift and get comfortable. So, you're a mom. She smiles for real now. One hell of a pretty smile. You bet. Girl? Uh-huh. Almost 15 months. I smile back. Cool. My guy's two and a half. He'll be three in December. What's his name? Benji. How about her? Ashley. Pretty. Teeth? She asks. We haven't lost any yet. Right. She hesitates while the DJ increases the volume on milkshake. How about the potty? I shake my head. We're not ready. Gotcha. I lean sideways so I can dig the offending wallet out of my front pocket. This time I'm discreet and leave it in my lap while I worm out two recent Sears portraits. I slide them onto the table. Gina really lights up. Oh, he's gorgeous, she says. I can tell it's not just a line. She actually means it. Then again, Ben is gorgeous. She looks into my eyes. I don't have any photos, I mean, on me. We both had a good laugh at that line. Gina crosses her sexy legs, and everything sways provocatively. But I'm watching her eyes now, her rather stunning brown eyes. Let me ask you, she says. 
You think there's a difference between boys and girls? I mean, right from birth? Oh, definitely. A different waitress stands over us, but I've still got half a bottle. So I realize I'm supposed to buy Gina another $10 seltzer. So I do, and add a $5 tip. Gina gets right back to it. So to you, it's nature, not nurture? I lean in. Well, I think it's both. I mean, do I treat Ben differently because he's a boy? Sure. I mean, I doubt if he's my daughter, I'd throw him in the air, at least not so high, or wrestle as much. But bottom line, boys and girls act different. They just do. She nods emphatically. See, I hear you. My mom, uh, Ashley stays with my mom. Uh, three of us live together. My mom says they're all the same, but I'm just not sure. Maybe I was wrong about Massapequa Park. Could be Staten Island or even South Brooklyn. I want to ask where Ashley's father is, but I can't do that. Instead, I tell her, just watch them when they're in preschool. You can line up a whole room full of them, half boys, half girls. Then the teacher will dump a box of toys on the floor. The boys will run toward anything with wheels or wings, cars, trucks, planes, trains. The girls will pick up dolls and animals. Then the boys will start shooting each other with juice box straws. I know, she laughs loudly, and I can tell I've made her night. Meantime, the girls will be cooking. You watch. Ashley will pack her own overnight bag next year, telling you what shampoo to buy her. Boys still forget to brush their teeth when they're in high school. She shakes her head. I respect what you're saying. I really do. But think about it. All of that, all that behavior, the toys, how they dress, how they groom, that could still be due to how they're raised, you know? I mean, if we treat them different from the minute they're out of the womb and start slapping blue and pink on everything, then of course they'll act all that out by preschool. How could they not? I take a long swig and tell her, maybe you're right. I can't argue with that. We carry all this stuff around with us, and it affects our kids in so many ways. It seeps in. I've read about how little girls are always told not to be aggressive. I'd like to think if I had a daughter, I would always encourage her, no matter what. Gina stares at me, saying nothing for long seconds. I take a swig, only because it's a socially acceptable way to keep busy. Then she says, you don't come here. I shake my head. Nope. I'm sort of a project for the guys at work. I mean, since my divorce, they're all, you know, sure, I could tell. But I'm glad I came, I say quickly. Divorce sucks, she mutters. I nod. But in my case, well, I've got Benji. I just want to be with him. Gina leans forward. And Benji's one lucky kid. Suddenly, the second bouncer hovers again. Sir, if you'd like a private dance, there are ladies available. Gina's got to get back to work. A dance? A private dance? Actually, I'd rather chat with Ashley's mom. I shake my head and stand up.
Guess we'll catch up next time, Gina. She smiles that pretty smile. Take care, Mike, and take care of that little guy. I smile, too. You bet I will. Before I can finish the Sam Adams, there's Wayne, right at my elbow. He's staring at me, his face contorted into a question mark. I tilt my bottle upward. You were right. Just what I needed. Thanks, dude.